The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. First letter of Peter, first epistle of Peter, if near the end of the New Testament. We've launched into this now, and last time saw the paragraph that really, I think, gives the theme of the letter, that phrase, born again to a living hope, seems to sing out as a main theme or subject of First Peter. And I pick up upon that now in verse 8, and I'm going to read through verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to God's holy word. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's own holy word. I wonder how much you believe in love at first sight. I've had people tell me some great stories. I always love to ask couples, how did you meet? Try that sometime. You get to know people really well when they tell you that story. You hear sometimes of love at first sight, sometimes hate at first sight. I know couples who despised each other and ended up in happy marriages. My wife Carol and I attended the same junior high school for two years, a grade apart, so we were never in the same classroom. In fact, each grade in that junior high had a wing unto itself, so you were fairly isolated from the people in the other grades. Then we were in a large high school together for a year before I knew who she was. I'd like to go back to somehow revisit the 13 to 15-year-old version of me if I could somehow get inside my eyeballs and know how many times I must have seen her in a hallway or in the cafeteria or someplace and just passed by with no idea that there was my life companion. I do recall a distinct day and hour when in my sophomore year of high school we had a class together, and uh, first day coming into that class, I was already in the class sitting down and next to a good friend of mine, and uh, this beautiful young brunette walked in, and I asked my friend, what is that girl's name? 
fateful question. Uh, And I can't say, honestly, that that was love at first sight either. It took about nine months. But certainly I can remember the moments of beginning to set eyes upon my wife. Our Bible text in 1 Peter 1.8 asks if it is possible to profoundly love someone you have never physically glimpsed, of whom no photograph is available. In fact, it doesn't just ask that question. It tells you that it indeed is possible and issues it as almost a command that we are to love Christ, whom we have not beheld with our eyes. I think that this section really picks up the pulse beat of what Peter is writing about. It's certainly not dry doctrine here. It is what it's all about, to live by faith and hope in Christ who we do not see. And the first affirmation of Peter here is, as I see it, he's saying all true Christians are drawn by unique bonds to the unseen Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And although you don't see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. I prefer, actually, the language there of the older King James, which says, Whom not having seen ye love, in whom, though you do not now see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable. And full of glory. Words cannot do it any homage or any accurate description. It is joy unspeakable. The hymn writer John Newton, two centuries ago, penned the words, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. Newton was saying there's nothing in the world that compares to that peculiar attachment that a Christian has to his Lord, to a man whose physical life on this planet ended 2,000 years ago, who nevertheless lives in us today and is a source of continual rejoicing for us. If you're an avid student of American history, there are places in America where you can go and receive particular vicarious knowledge of someone who lived in our nation's past who maybe did great deeds or was a notable leader. If you go to the Lincoln Memorial, for example, in Washington, D.C., and you don't have to believe in ghosts to sense the presence of Lincoln, that masterpiece of a brooding statue of Lincoln seated looking out on the green of Washington there towards the Washington Monument is something that just casts a spell on those who see it. I have been there enough times to see parents rein in boisterous children and be quiet, be quiet, almost like they were in a church. And they sense the solemnity of who Lincoln was and what he did and the ideals that are expressed on the words carved into the walls. It's as though Lincoln is there. Well, Peter was there with Jesus. He had seen him, of course, face-to-face for nearly three years, traveling with him, living near to him, observing his teaching, his miracles. Remember Jesus borrowing Peter's boat, one of their first acquaintances, saying, put your boat out a little ways from shore and let me use it as a pulpit. Or Jesus healing people, or healing Peter's mother-in-law. 
And certainly he remembered the vivid and terrible scenes of the cross that he saw a part of at least before he, we believe he fled there before Jesus actually died. But he certainly saw enough of the terror, the whip, and all of that that just was seared on his memory. But Peter also was there in John 21. That morning, a day or more after the resurrection, when, remember, Jesus told them to cast the net in a particular place, and he, recognizing that this had taken place once before, and when the fish came in more than they could haul, and someone cried out, It's the Lord! Peter was out of the boat and splashing his way towards the beach, so desirous of being in the living presence of his Savior again. Peter, though, does a remarkable thing here. In speaking to people, as he writes, he's, remember he's writing to people who are in the far-flung edges of the Roman Empire. He could probably presume with accuracy that no one he was writing to had actually witnessed Jesus alive. And after all, this is 30-some years later, besides being many, many miles distant where these people were living. But yet he says, you too love him. Not having seen him, you love him. And he honors that. He honors the idea that people who didn't see him at all could have a very similar relationship and uh, desire to know him more and more as Peter himself did, almost as if he's saying, look, your faith is more to be respected than mine. It, for me, it took physical sight to know him. You know him without that. How honored you are. And he could be speaking to us, couldn't he, in the 21st century? You know that Bible-believing people talk today about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, there are unbelievers who say, what in the world is that about? How do you have a personal relationship with someone you've never seen? If I went out and told people I have a personal relationship with Napoleon Bonaparte, you'd probably be saying, Here, you know, here's the yellow pages. Look up under psychiatrists and make an appointment right away. How could you know Napoleon Bonaparte? Of course I can't. But of course we can be bonded in unique love to our living Savior. We can trust in his existence. We have many historical reports of him. We have much information about him. And we have experienced this new birth of his grace. We have hopefully experienced what it means to hope in him and have a secured hope and be enthralled with the excellencies of God and his character that are exhibited and displayed in Christ, in his personality, in his words. And and so this relationship with him is neither psychotic mania nor mysticism. The eye of faith really does see Christ and hold on to him. And when we have that relationship, it has great effects on us. I'm remembering a scene, a snowy scene. I don't want to wish snow on a day like this. It's such a great fall day out there. But I'm remembering that way back 47 years ago in 1969, when I lived in western New York State, it was one of the worst winters that part of the world had seen in a long, long time. And, of course, that's an area known for bad winter. My college that I attended was in what's called the snow belt 
in western New York where Lake Erie dumps its moist air on the cold ground and you get plenty of snow. Well, that particular year I was in college and my bride-to-be was working in suburban Buffalo. So you know where I was every other weekend or so, almost every weekend if I could afford it. I would plan carefully and have the car packed and ready to go as I went to the afternoon class on Friday afternoon, if I went to the afternoon class on Friday afternoon, which I didn't always do. And uh, I would take off. No matter, I didn't consult weather reports. Volkswagen Beetles are great. How do you think the plow drivers get to the plow in the first place? They all drive Volkswagens. So my little trusty light blue Volkswagen would conduct me away from Houghton College north to the Buffalo suburbs. And I do not exaggerate. You know, people tend to exaggerate these stories, but honestly, there were times when the snow on the sides of the road was quite a bit higher than the roof of the car that I was driving in that part of the world. Why would I do that? Why would I venture out into that kind of weather that might be very risky for me? Well, obviously, it was to see a woman who I loved. And every Friday, I felt this great anticipation. My inner radar was already not located in the college anymore. It was homing out there, not towards a city or a house or a place, but a person. My fiancé was the destination for me those weekends, and I was possessed by the prospect of seeing her for a couple of days. Well, I think being a disciple of Jesus Christ is a lot like that. We are literally possessed by a relationship that drives us, draws us, entices us to know more and more of vibrant life experience of Christ himself, which we know, of course, through the Word of God, through the experience of worship, and through prayer. Peter says in verses 8 and 9 here, you believe in Christ and you are filled with an inexpressible or unspeakable glorious joy for you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I would point out to you that he said before this that the salvation of our souls was something, uh, verse 5, ready to be revealed to us in the last time. It was an event way out there yet in history, even beyond our own lifetimes. But now he says, well, you're actually receiving it. You're actually receiving portions of it and installments of it now as you know Christ and put your hope in him. Faith in Christ is not something detached or lukewarm. It's exuberant. It's passionate. It's inexpressible, says the writer here, Peter. He says we long to know Jesus more and more. Now, this isn't something you just coolly and calmly sit there without any expression on your face and, and, and act. It's, it's something that warms you up and gets you moving and actually, wonder of wonders, even Presbyterians experience it every now and then. That seems surprising, doesn't it? (laughs) This great feeling, this passion for Christ breaks the bonds of simple verbal calculation or expression. I think that's why music 
is such an important part of Christian worship. Music touches areas of our lives. Not, I, we could say emotion, but it's more than emotion. It's a, it touches deep things in our lives as psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and arias and cantatas and so on draw forth responses from us at another level from just the rational spoken word. Music and singing touches unique joy, glorious joy. I find it interesting what we do with a particular hymn. I don't know that I have ever really cataloged what are my favorite Christmas songs, Christmas carols. I suppose I could give a list. I think in the top five anyway would be Joy to the World, The Lord Has Come, Isaac Watts. But you know, it, it dawned on me once quite a few years ago. You can check it out yourself. And 195, I think it is in the hymnal. Do the research while I'm talking if you want to. Joy to the World is not specifically a Christmas carol in the sense that there's anything about it that is tied to the birth of Christ alone. Read the words. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. It could be an everyday song. You could sing it in July. You could sing it in September. There's nothing that ties it strictly or exclusively to December. Joy. Let me sing of my Savior. Peter's putting that forth here. He's saying we have this certain inheritance. We have the foretaste of it being received now. We're receiving installment payments in the robust joy of knowing Christ. Who would not want to sing, at least if they're able to, of this great fact? So there should be in our corporate worship on Sundays, even in the anticipation of worship. And, and aren't we guilty many times, the pastor included, let's be really honest, of approaching Sunday morning and say, oh man, it's Sunday morning. I could think of a few places I'd rather be. Isn't there some of that trembling, passionate interest like you might have felt on a wedding day, for example, the morning of of wedding day? What a special day this is, full of trembling excitement and, and the change and the important thing that's going to happen on this day. Why is there not more of that in our coming to worship the Lord Worship him with this joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. Well, secondly, I see in verses 10 and 12 here, 10 through 12, a building on this theme as Peter then says how it is that biblical prophets loved the unseen Christ. They never saw his face. They lived before him by centuries. And this passage gives us a sense of the unity of the Bible as one revelation from God as God was revealing Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, he states it in a very unusual way here that the Spirit of Christ, verse 11, in them was indicating something when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ. These people were searching intently. What does this mean? When will this come? Who will this be? And that perfectly pictures the endeavor of being a prophet in Old Testament days. Isaiah, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Malachi. These people didn't know the name Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't have all these facts and pictures laid out for them. 
but they were seeking the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit, who was speaking of Christ, was working in them, predicting these things which they only partially understood. So Jesus was not only the one about whom the prophets were speaking, he was the one speaking through the prophets. And the Old Testament, when you do a study of this, is just chock full of all kinds of signposts pointing to Christ. We talk about what the Bible scholar calls types. That is some kind of a prefigurement, either a word picture or an action or a person in the Old Testament who represents something about Christ long before Christ was known. Noah's Ark is pictured. The idea of of the safety we come into against the the flood of this world. We come into Christ against the torrent, against the flood of sin and death. The idea of Christ fulfilling the blood of all those altars and all those offerings that were given in the Old Testament. Abraham offering his son Isaac as the innocent victim certainly is a type of Christ. And Christ as the great king who was going to surpass David. David was promised there will be a king on your throne who will far surpass you. And you could think, well, that had to be Solomon because he was the guy that piled up all the gold and everybody came and marveled at Solomon. Well, Solomon was nothing at all compared to Christ, the great king who followed. The whole Bible keeps telling us from Old Testament into New that there was only one way of salvation. The way that Abraham believed was counted to him for righteousness. He was looking for Christ, whether he could say the name Jesus of Jesus Christ or not. He was looking for God's Messiah. The cross and resurrection of Jesus were always the crossroads of history, the apex where history's meaning would all come together. Christ brought redemption to millions of people who never knew him by name, but who hoped in him and who knew that God was going to do some such thing in future time. And so Peter says, these prophets were not serving themselves. They were serving us in what they told about him. And, you know, it's fascinating to realize the prophets apparently didn't always even understand what they were writing. They, they had a little piece of truth that God the Spirit gave them, and they recorded that piece and we put all the pieces together and we have the picture, but, but each individual prophet didn't have the whole picture. Daniel once said in Daniel 8.27, I was appalled by my vision. I did not understand it. And yet he wrote it down. The total revelation of Christ who was to come as the prophets looked forward was, was really could be compared, I guess, to a jigsaw puzzle with several thousand people. And over here was Daniel, who had a number of pieces that were fitted together. Okay, and he had a few more pieces over here and a few more over here. But you know how those jigsaw puzzles are. There's a lot of blue sky. That's the hardest part of all, or ocean water. And you, t- you try to put it together, and you say, well, I'll never get this whole picture together. Well, prophets like Moses and Isaiah, They didn't have the whole picture assembled. They had something that God gave them. And we look back and say, oh, look at that. Isaiah's four pieces over there in in Isaiah 53 fit perfectly and tell us all kinds of things. But Isaiah didn't understand fully what that 
looked for or what it had to say. Habakkuk, a little tiny prophet, went up on his watchtower, and he was actually kind of an arrogant guy at first, and Habakkuk said, I'm going to go in this watchtower, and I'm not going to eat or drink until God tells me what's going on. I want to know what's going on. I I'm, think God owes me an explanation. It's basically Habakkuk's mood. And the Lord showed Habakkuk, he said, the vision awaits its time. In other words, you're not going to find out today. If it seems slow, wait for it, for it will surely come without delay. Habakkuk and the other prophets had to learn that the gospel is a progressive revelation as the Bible moves along and history unfolds. And it comes to the point in the New Testament when Jesus says in Matthew 13 to some people who were listening to him, look, blessed are the ears that hear what you hear and the eyes that see what you see. In other words, great people, Abraham, Moses, didn't see everything you folks do listening to me here today. And think what that means to us as much further along as we are in history. Hebrews 11 talks about people of faith who it says persevered, quote, as seeing him who is invisible. We don't have to entirely look for him who is invisible. History has the record. And it's a reliable record in this, these Gospels and this book of Acts and Romans and all the other things that we have. So we don't have to look for something invisible. We don't practice mysticism. As a philosophy major, I took a course in mysticism once, and it was the worst thing I ever did. I had no idea what those people were talking about. Wild visions out of their minds that just didn't relate to anything. We have a historic revelation. We in the 21st century, it's a wonderful gift. It's the full picture of the puzzle assembled for us. And think of how God spoke through all those people of the past who saw an unseen Christ, at least in some little piece of the picture. Well, finally, I give you a little epitaph that's at the end of this passage in verse 12, tantalizing this little phrase that's here. Peter makes a curious observation as he says, even angels long to look into these things. He's sort of putting it at a whole another level here. He says, beings who dwell in the presence of God, who serve God, who are not mere humans, they also are amazed at what God is doing through Christ in human history. Our oldest granddaughter is 22, and I can remember very well when she was pretty young, and I remember taking her to the circus when she was three years old. There was a circus here in Lancaster. They set up in the big parking lot of Park City Mall, as I remember it. And uh, there we were, sitting right close to the center ring. As the elephants trod by us, I remember one of the big attractions was what the elephants left behind after they went by. For some reason, to a three-year-old, that was a big deal. And uh, clowns and acrobats were practically falling on top of us in our seats. But for me, for a grandfather, almost as great a, a view as anything that was happening in the ring was what was happening on the face of a three-year-old in my lap. Eyes as big as saucers, absolutely wrapped with attention in what was going on at that circus, and I'll never forget it. Well, here's Peter. 
saying that angels who serve God worship him with similar wonderment at his ways as that three-year-old watching the circus. They certainly know many things that God is doing. They understand that things have been revealed to them that God is doing. They act as his messengers, the Scripture tells us, but we may surmise that they don't have the entire mind of God. And I think it's a possible speculation to say that the cross was a shock to them. The resurrection was a shock to them. God, Father, honored Father, you are doing that for them? For people like that? It must have amazed the angelic beings what God did. In fact, we see some indications of this. 1 Corinthians 1.4 says God's work of grace is, quote, a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. And Paul again, Ephesians 3.10 says, through the church, God's wisdom is being put on display to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. God is saying, look, look what I'm doing. Look what my son is sent to do, the central drama of the universe. Angels look at it with holy curiosity as God works in the midst of unworthy human beings to open the way of salvation and hope in Jesus Christ. Is that not a great thing? And here we are, living in this 21st century, way after the prophets, where all their prophecies have come true in Christ, except the closing acts of Christ's final return and final consummation and judgment. Do we have any trouble believing those final acts will happen when everything else has come about exactly as predicted? What privileged people we are. You say, well, I don't see God. And you want to cry on my shoulder about that? I'm sorry, I won't accept your tears. Look what God has showed you. Look at the spectacle. Look at the drama that he has already revealed. You are not an underprivileged person. You are a privileged person. God has spun out for you his plan for the ages, his plan to win a people for his own praise through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his Son. And we live in an age when these great movements are closer and closer than ever before to being brought to a conclusion. I just end with a question. Has God awakened your understanding to trust in the same unseen Christ that prophets predicted and looked and longed for? Has he given you a a strong bond of affection for this Savior who is alive today and who lives in his believing people? Has he given you that incomparable joy, unspeakable and full of glory that can tide you through the hardest times in this world? And if you say, Well, I don't know if he's yet given me that enthralling relationship or not. Then I ask you, what are you waiting for? Why would you not turn to him and offer him all your allegiance, all your heart's interest, 
all your mind's consuming curiosity in a relationship that will never end and in eternity will only go on and on and grow and grow with joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. You can begin that relationship today as you offer him your life, your soul, your all. Our Father, I thank you that Jesus Christ, the gift of the Advent season and the Christmas season, is a gift worthy of all attention given to it. We need to sing joy to the world. The Lord is come not simply at Christmas, but every day. Thank you, Father. What a privilege. We stand on the shoulders of prophets, angels peering alongside us, exclaim the greatness of things we are allowed to see. Help us, Father, to have a hope that shines brightly and sustains us even in this evil day. We thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen.